acting intentionally, even growing up. Uh, the Bible says that he was born into a manger. He was born in, in, into poverty, and he had no place to, to lay his head. They placed him in a manger. Uh, he, was, he was laid there among all the livestock and everything else, and he grew up in Nazareth, and he, and he grew up as a, uh, as a kid. Uh, you know, they didn't celebrate Halloween back then, but you know, Jesus probably did some, some kid-like things. He was a kid in every way. He was, uh, he was, he was, uh, he was a real person. He, uh, he went through, uh, teenage years. He went through, uh, think about this, God, God himself, a member of the Trinity became flesh. God himself subjected himself to, to puberty. You know, Jesus went through puberty. Uh, Jesus went through uh, young adulthood, and, and, and he went through all of that life in a, in a particular place, in a specific location in Nazareth, and he didn't do any of it haphazardly. He didn't just wake up and say, hmm, wonder what I should do today. Jesus did everything with great purpose and great intention, and he did it while the people of Nazareth watched him. Now, with that being said, let's look at Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, his hometown being Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I want you to see that. He marveled. Because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, I have several points in this today. And I want to run through them pretty quickly. But the whole message is about what should a disciple expect? That's the title of today's sermon. What should a disciple expect? Should a disciple expect what he largely hears on television? When he turns on the TV and watches a TV preacher? Should he expect that if he gets in the, up in the morning and just puts on a smile and just says, today's going to be a great day, should he expect to have a great day? Should he expect to be able to control things with, with the speech of his mouth? Should he just be able to, to name it and claim it and, and see that it come true for him? Should he expect ease and comfort and pleasure and, and no harm ever? Well, if you listen to a lot of the preaching on TV, you would say, Yes, that's exactly what a disciple should expect. And it's spilling over into our churches across America. We have created a, a mindset, a mentality of a, a, a consumerism within our churches where it's all about the product. What do we offer that the church down the road doesn't offer? What, do, what does Abner Creek offer that Burnsview doesn't or, uh, or, or another church in our community? What do we offer that... They don't. And we've, we've created this whole mindset of it's all about you as a consumer wanting to please you and wanting to give you what will cause you to come back. And the reality is that's a long way from real discipleship. 
Discipleship is not about you coming to a nice, comfortable environment and having a nice, easy life. Discipleship is about so much more. It is about this common mission that we have been charged with, that Jesus has left us with. And Jesus, I started out by saying, never did anything haphazardly. Everything he did was on purpose. And so I would argue this morning that the, the point of this passage, Mark 6, 1 through 6, I think the, the major point of it is that we see here a picture of Jesus preparing his disciples. We see them, him preparing his disciples. If you will, turn back to chapter 5, verse 21. In chapter 5, verse 21, it says, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. He had left from casting out the, the legion of demons in the demoniac, and he had left that situation after the townspeople there begged him to leave. He came back across to a crowd that loved that he was there. They thronged about him. Look at verse 24. Uh, in verse 24, uh, Chapter 5, verse 24, uh, it says that uh, Jesus, when the, when the uh, centurion or, or the, uh, the leader uh, came to him, the leader of the temple came to him, that Jesus went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jesus here is letting the disciples see how these crowds are up and they're down. He takes them through experiences where the crowd hates him and wants him to leave, brings them back into a situation where the crowd can't get enough of him and they press on him and he can't go anywhere where, where they're not. And here in the first verse of the section we're in today, in chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown. And probably the disciples are thinking, oh, we're going to where Jesus grew up. Oh, this is going to be a great experience. They will love us there. The home cooking is going to be great. We're going to have so many meals. It's going to be wonderful. Only it's a little different. Look at verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Right before that, he says that he went about the village's teaching. Right before that, it says that a prophet is without honor except is not without honor except in his hometown. Jesus wants them to see that no matter where you go, there will be mixed reactions. He's preparing the disciples. Jesus leaves the crowd that loved him where his power and his deity was greatly displayed. He had, he had healed a woman of an issue of blood and raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. The crowd loved him to go home where you would think that crowd would love him. But instead, that crowd was not as large they didn't believe him, and his power and his deity seemed to be veiled or restrained. I think Jesus here is preparing his disciples, showing them what this is all about. Why? Why did Jesus leave this? Because in the second part of verse 1, it says, his disciples followed him. As I was studying that, I thought, well, that's just an interesting little fact. It's probably meaningless that, that the text there says, makes a point to say, and his disciples followed him to his hometown. But I think it gives us a clue as to what this whole section is all about. His disciples go with him because Jesus is showing them, the second point, that it's not about wowing the crowd. 
It's never about wowing the crowd. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, that's what we look for in a church, right? We want to be astonished. We want the, the preacher to have power and enthusiasm in his sermon. We want it to be relevant, and we want it to, to be intriguing, and we want to walk away saying, wow, wasn't that great? <laughs> and there are times when I get in the car and I'll say, honey, how was my sermon? Eh. Music was good. You've had better. And I'm glad to come across this verse where it says, it's not about wowing the crowd. In my flesh, in my sinfulness, yes, I love, I'll just be honest with you, I love to stand at the back and for you to come by and say, boy, it was a great sermon today. You know what? It's my flesh. But I'm reminded on a regular basis that it's not about your opinion of me. It's not about your opinion of the preaching. It is about you seeing the one that I'm preaching about. And Jesus says here in this text that he began to teach in the synagogue and there were many in the crowd that were astonished. That word astonished is a word that means to be hit or to be blasted. In other words, Jesus stood and he taught them or he sat and he taught them and they were blown away. He knocked their socks off. It's a word that means he hit them hard and they were impressed and amazed. But it's not a word that means genuine faith. It's not a word that means genuine belief. Jesus here wants them to see that there will be members of the crowd who will follow and be astonished at what you do. But unless they come to a point where they realize their sin and they realize their need of a Savior and the Savior comes in to forgive them through repentance and faith in Him, then none of it matters a hill of beans. They were blown away. This was a common reaction to Jesus. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It's not about wowing the crowd. It's about preaching. I worded this carefully. It's about preaching the message of God in the power of God. I say that because it comes straight out of the text. Look at what they say in verse 2. They were astonished and then they said, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? They are referring to his message. And it's obvious to them that his message is different than the rest of the messages that they hear. And therefore, they're referring to the message of God. Jesus never preached off on a tangent. Jesus preached the message of God because he himself had the very heart of God. He was God. It's about preaching the message of God. And then they go on. The third question they ask is, how are such mighty works done by his hands? They look at his life and they cannot deny the miracles that are being done. The people of his own hometown that watched him grow up as a child and a teenager and a young adult, many of them had had maybe come to him for 
for a, a repair on a piece of furniture or for him to do some type of carpentry work. They had known him because the town he lived in was no bigger than about 500 people. They knew him. And they said, where's this wisdom coming from? How are the works done by his hands? These mighty works that obviously he does. And that's why I say to you that it's not about wowing the crowd. It's about preaching the message of God and the power of God. And you say, well, that's great for you. You're the preacher, but it doesn't really have anything for me. All of us as believers, as disciples, are preachers. All of us are preachers. You preach with your life and you are to preach with your words as well. You should go out of this place. And in the relationships that already exist in your life... You should preach the message of God in the power of God so that his name would be glorified. Third point is this. There will be those, this is what he wants them to expect. He, he, this is where he gets to the heart of it. This is what he wants them to see. He wants them to see that as you go about preaching the message of God in the, word, in, in the, in the power of God, that there will be those who intentionally overlook the obvious. As you go out of here, you may think that you're going out and you're going to, because I'm the Messiah, you'll go out of here and you will represent me and everyone will just throng about you and they will believe what you say and they will follow you and this mission will be over in no time. And he wants them to see that there will be those that intentionally overlook the obvious. And that's what this group here does in verse 2. What's this message that he preaches? Where, where did he get this? How are these mighty works done by his hands? Well, the obvious answer is, he's God. He's the son of God. He's the one who we've read about. He's the one who we were waiting for. He is the promised Messiah. But instead, they deny all of that because they grew up watching him. They watched him grow up and they are familiar with him. And familiarity breeds contempt. And they don't want to admit the obvious. And as you go about your business and your daily life, you will live in such a way that you will preach the message of God in the power of God. And there will be those that even though they see your life as you live in the power of God, preaching the message of God, even though they see that there is something different, there is something altogether unique, there will still be those who deny it. They will intentionally overlook the obvious. Picture with me, if you will. You come through the house and you go into your kitchen and you get into your kitchen and there is milk everywhere. I mean, it looks like someone has just taken buckets of milk and just thrown milk everywhere. I mean, it's dripping from the ceiling, running off the counters. It's on the walls, dripping. It's in the floor. The dog is in the middle of it, licking it up. And you say, well... I wonder how this happened. And then you see your three-year-old sitting around the corner of the island in the kitchen, slapping the milk on the floor. He's covered in it from head to toe. Would you still say, I wonder how this happened? Or would you say, ah, now I know how this happened. There are those who look at the work of God, 
There are those who look at the message of God and see it revealed by the power of God and still deny it. They still intentionally overlook it. How can you look at creation or the universe and deny that there is a God behind that? But there are people who do it every single day. And Jesus wants them to know that just as they intentionally overlooked the obvious things about me, they will also do it with you. There will be those who attack your character, Jesus wants them to know and understand. Look at verse 3 at what they do. Is not this the carpenter? What they're saying is, is this not the the simpleton? Is this not the man that we saw grow up, that, that he learned his trade from his father Joseph? Is, is this not the one who simply works with his hands? He's never been to school. He's never been trained as a rabbi. Isn't he just the carpenter? It's derogatory. They want to deny who he is and claim that it couldn't be that because he's simply simple and he's common. He's uneducated and he's one of us. Nothing good could ever come out of Nazareth, Philip said. They go on, they said, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? You say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is because in that day, sons were always identified by their father. And you say, well, but, but Joseph was dead. It didn't matter. Even after the father was long dead, the son was still identified as the son of Joseph or whatever the case may be. But here when they say, is this not the son of Mary? Basically, they are attacking Mary's character, accusing her of being a tramp. And they are accusing Jesus of being the illegitimate son of Mary. Who knows who his father is? Isn't he the son of Mary? And then they say, isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters right here with us? And here they're alluding to the fact that even his own brothers and sisters don't believe who he is. The first time he came to teach in Nazareth, he opened the scroll and he read from the scroll and they all applauded him and said, Oh, isn't he wonderful? But then he began to expound on the text and he began to preach and it, it got very uh, confrontational. And they stood up and they rushed him and they took him out of the city to the, to the cliff, and they were going to toss him over the cliff. How's that for a hometown welcome? And later on, we just, we just looked at it just a few chapters before this, in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, right in there, where it says that they got word that he was in town and how the crowd was pressing around him and all the things that he was saying and doing, and he couldn't even eat. And so his mother and his brothers came to get him, and they said, he's out of his mind. And the town was watching that. The people of Nazareth were watching that. And when they say, aren't his brothers and his sisters right here among us? And they don't even believe him? Why should we believe him? Who is this who comes in teaching these things? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this the brother of these who are among us? They attack his character. 
And Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants these 12 that are following him to understand and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that as you go out from this place, there will be those who attack you personally. They will attack your character. They will make up things about you. They will say things to hurt you and your family. They will do whatever it takes to discredit you. But don't give up. Don't you dare give up. Because I'm the one who's called you. You follow me. If they insulted me and attacked me, they will attack you all the more. You keep going. Follow me. He wanted them to know that there will be those who attack his character or their character. He also wanted them to know that you will often be rejected by those who know you the best. In verse 4, he says to them, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. There's a little word there that, that I, I think the Spirit of God caused me to get stuck on. It's, a, it's the word them. And Jesus said to them. Is he answering those who said, who is this and by what power does he do these things? Isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of all these who are here? Is he answering them? I don't think so. I think as the disciples are with him and they're watching this play out and they're in their minds saying, this is Jesus' hometown. These are the people that know him the best. I think it's to those 12 that he turns and says, A prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. It's this intimate moment between him and the twelve. And he wants them to know that sometimes the ones who will hurt you the most, and reject you the most, and cast stones at you the most, are the ones who are the closest to you. They will be your family. They will be your friends. They will be those who do not understand. They will be the ones who have seen you grow up and have seen all your faults. And we can understand that this may have been why they rejected Jesus except for this one thing. Jesus had grown up among them without any faults. Maybe this caused them to hate him all the more. Can you imagine going to elementary school? With Jesus? Going to middle school and high school with Jesus? Blew the curve again. Jesus, you know, you you aced the test. We all made 23. You made 100. You know, I could see them hating him all the more because he lived his life without ever sinning. There will be those who reject you, and sometimes there will be those in your family and your friends. They know you. They've seen a former life of yours. They've seen you mess up. They've seen you make mistakes and sin and and make promises and break those promises. And they will say, who are you to tell me anything about this? And you can say, well, I'm really not anybody. But the one that I'm following is. He's changed my life. He's forgiven me my sin and he's living inside of me right now and he's making me like himself. And it's a gradual process and I'm not perfect by any stretch. 
but he is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Jesus wants them to know that they will often be rejected by those who know them best. And the last thing is this. Jesus wants them to know that there will be times when you must move on. There, there will be times when you must move on. In verse 5, he says to them, the text says, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. It's an amazing statement. He could do no mighty work there. Because of their unbelief, he could do no mighty work there. Really, it's not that Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. It's that he wouldn't. If there was a time when Jesus couldn't do something, then he would not be omnipotent. If he was not omnipotent, then he would not be God. He would be something less than God, which would make him just like you and I. And therefore, his going to the cross and having nails driven through his hands and feet to the point where he eventually died and was placed in a tomb, he would have simply been punished as a man. There would have been no resurrection because God would not have been pleased with his sacrifice. But because he is omnipotent, he is God. He did die on the cross. He was placed in the tomb. He did, on the third day, come out of the tomb alive and well because God the Father looked at the sacrifice and said, It is finished. I am well pleased in the sacrifice of my son. My son. I am pleased to crush him. That's what Isaiah says. There will be times, though, when you must move on. It's not that Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. It's that he wouldn't. Here's a principle from Scripture that you need to get. Jesus will not force his miracles or his message on unbelieving skeptics. Neither should we. There was a point here where he said, hm, no more. I will do no more mighty works in this town. And he washed his hands of it. And there are times when you and I must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to say, it's time to move on. It's time to stop. Now, we should always be ready to go. We should always be ready to preach. We should always be ready to do anything that God says to do. Namely, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We should be ready to do that at the drop of a hat before he drops the hat and not stop until he says to stop. We, I hesitated to preach this point, but it's in the text, but some of you will take this, this point and you will say, well, the preacher said there is a time to stop. And you will use it as an excuse not to witness. And you will allow it to enable your laziness. And I would tell you it's better most of the time to err on the fact of us going and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching some more. Than to stop on our own. But we must be sensitive to the Spirit of God that when He closes a door, then at that point, we must be obedient. I told you that was the last point. I lied. I'm sorry. 
He also wanted them to know that their response will never cease to amaze you. But just keep teaching. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. He went about among the villages teaching. He marveled. Can you imagine Jesus marveling at their unbelief? The Bible says that Jesus marveled at faith twice in Scripture. The first time was with the centurion that came to him and said, My servant is sick. And Jesus said, Then let's go. I'll go with you. And he said, Rabbi, I'm a man of authority and there are people under me and I give commands and they go and they do. And I'm convinced that you are of such authority that you can command from right here and not have to go with me and you can heal my servant. And Jesus, it says that he marveled at the centurion's faith. He marveled and he said, greater faith I have found nowhere in this land than with this man right here. He marveled at his faith, not even a Jew. But here, the second time Jesus marvels, it's not because he's marveling at their faith. He's marveling at their lack of faith. He marvels that these people that he grew up with and loved, and they loved him. And he's reached out to them on multiple occasions, are still rejecting, still unbelieving. There's something that causes Jesus here to be amazed. As I thought through this, I wrestled with this, and I I wondered, does this point to Jesus' submission to the will of the Father? I mean, if Jesus here is omniscient and knows everything, why would he marvel at this? Could it be that he has subjected himself to the will of the Father so much that part of what he's laid down is here knowing their belief or unbelief. I don't know. That's just, I didn't find that in a commentary. I may be way off base saying it. But I think, it, think it's probably what he meant in John six forty four when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I wonder if somewhere in his heart, Jesus was saying, Father, draw them to yourself. I think he probably longed for Nazareth to experience great repentance and to come by faith to him. But he stood back and he marveled. Regardless if that's what is meant there or not, and that's just simply my opinion of that. But regardless, the point is that we don't know who will believe. If Jesus here is marveling at their lack of faith, you and I will be constantly surprised by Sometimes their faith and sometimes their lack of faith. I have, I have preached uh, in this pulpit and others and thought, boy, the Spirit really just moved today and would go down and offer the invitation and no one would move. And there are other times when I would stand up here and I would think, boy, I stunk it up today. I should have spent some more time in my office studying, you know. And then I go down and I offer the invitation and people just come out. The teaching there, the point is that it's not about what I say. I mean, it is about the truth that I say, but it's not about how I deliver it, about how persuasive I am. It's about the Father drawing people to himself. Right. 
Jesus wants them to know that you're always going to be shocked. You're always going to be surprised. They will never do exactly what you think they're going to do. But just keep teaching. I love that in the last part of verse 6. It says that he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. He didn't let it discourage him. He didn't let it get him down. He just kept teaching. Now, all of this, Jesus wants them to know all of these things. He wants them to know that, that they will often uh, overlook, intentionally overlook the obvious, that they will attack your character, they will reject you, even those who are closest to you and know you best. There will be times when you've got to move on, and there will be uh, responses. Their responses will be all over the place. You'll never know it. Jesus wants them to know all of that. You say, well, boy, isn't this just an enlightening message today? Don't I feel good today going out of here? That's what I should expect as a disciple. Well, here's why I say it is encouraging. Why would you want to be a disciple? And why would you want to make or bring someone else along and and make disciples? Basically because of a verse that I already quoted, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the greatest mission that we could ever be called to. Making disciples of all nations to worship around the throne of Christ is the greatest thing that we could ever pour our lives into. There is no 401k that can match that. Sorry, grandparents, but there is no grandchild that can match that. There is no career on the planet that can match that. Making disciples of all nations is the greatest mission that we could ever invest our lives in. And we have been invited by the Son of God to join Him. And He would be with us even to the very end. That's encouraging. We will experience His presence firsthand as we follow that. What can you expect? A lot of hardship. But also, you can expect to experience the presence of Christ along the way. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I know very little, God, about what you want to do in these next few minutes. But God, I know what your word has told me. It's told all of us. Is that you are in the business of redeeming a people to yourself. And so, God, this morning, right now, I pray, God, that you would redeem some from right in this very room. That you would bring glory and honor to your own name through the preaching that has gone on today. Lord, whatever it is, God, that you would see done, have your way. You don't need my permission, but God, I beg you to show yourself glorious and strong and true. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to the message a little differently today. Up here at the front, you notice that there are tables with the Lord's Supper elements on them. If you are a believer here today, the Bible says that we are to do this often in remembrance of Christ by taking part in this and eating of the bread.
and, and drinking of the cup together that we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. That before we do that, that we are to examine ourselves and make sure that we are not taking it in an unworthy manner. That if there is sin in our lives that we are participating in and we've not repented of that sin, confessed it before God and received forgiveness of that sin, that we should not take of these, this, this element, these elements today. And so as we respond today, here's the invitation. If today you're not a believer, but today you want to boldly proclaim, I'm not ashamed of Christ. I want him to be my Savior and my Lord. I need him to forgive me of my sin and make me right before God. Then I'm going to be right here in the front. It's not about walking an aisle, but if you need today to pray and ask God to come save you and to be the Lord of your life, then I would love to be here and help you today. There may be some of you today that before you take these elements, you know there's things in your lives that are not right. And there's sin that you've got to get rid of and you've got to confess and turn it over to God. And then today I'd be here to pray with you as well. These steps are open. You can come and kneel across these steps and just get alone with God. You don't have to come up here at all. You can pray right where you are. But as a faith family today, as the body of Christ, unified in the love of God, through the blood of His Son, we today are going to respond by walking out of your, your chairs today And maybe you want to come with your family. Maybe you want to come by yourself. Maybe with a Sunday school group, a small group. I want you to come and I want you to take the elements today. I want you to come and not wait on anyone, but just to take the bread and eat the bread. Remembering that it was his body that was sacrificed for you. And to drink the cup, symbolizing that his his blood that was shed for you. And as we do this together as a faith family, we come together. We come together saying we love one another. And this is the bond that unites us. Maybe there's someone in the room that you're not right with. And maybe before you come do this, maybe you need to say, I will not be a hypocrite and I will go across. And I will reconcile with my brother or my sister. And maybe you too need to come and take communion together. If you are a blood-bought child of God today, then we encourage you to respond by remembering his sacrifice for us. Let's stand. Whenever you're ready, you can be the first one out or you can wait. If you're there and walking down and, and actually participating in the elements is a it's, it's hard for you to come and walk and maybe stand in line. We've got somebody that would be available to bring it to you. If you'll just sort of lift your hand, we'll do that. Now, don't everybody do that or else that one person with that one tray is going to be very busy. But let's celebrate what God has done today. You respond with whatever you need to do.